0: Greetings ladies and messagers and welcome to the latest chapter of First Contact taken from the subreddit hfy. All the relevant links will be down below. Please like, comment and subscribe like any evil genius of the algorithm would do. And as always, I hope that you enjoy chapter 409. Ten thousand bleed before me. Ten thousand cry behind me. A thousand stand beside me. War has destroyed us. The hackernite female's voice was soft and pure, wafting through the reefed point. It merged with the howl of the cutting bars hacking down trees, the grinders working on the vehicles, the shouts of the Terrans as they worked, and the sound of the ad hoc crews doing what they could. War has changed us. War has united us. Once he stood alone, called the cheat. Now he stands among many. Beside her, an immature, well-cred female was playing a slow, melancholy tune to go with the Aconite's singing. She had a little wind instrument, the end against her mouth, the reed parallel to her face. Her fingers worked as she played. Strong fingers that I'd seen holding down a Terran with a blown-off arm as the medics worked on him. I heard of a thousand voices, feral. Primitive Latinx land united. We stand with one purpose, to protect those that cannot fight. I sat in the mud, my legs folded underneath me, leaning over slightly to rest my shoulder against the expended missile pods. I felt exhausted, like I'd been up since dawn of time. I checked my chrono in my helmet and saw that I'd been awake for nearly thirty-eight hours, over twice the recommended time for even sleep-deprived training. Partling cult, Philly, it no longer matters. Every voice lost is one too far. Every inch gained is a thousand too short. Every machine destroyed is a million too few. My biological eyes closed, and I was loath to open them. The two cyber eyes let me see anyway, almost with perfect clarity. I thought about how an old Lanaklan, on the sixty-third floor of a hab complex I had grown up in, had cyber eyes, and often complained that he could not see things clearly. Only shapes and shadows, and a slight bit of color. My eyes felt like they were stuck together when I opened them again at a crash. Yet me stand, me stand filled with rage, with loss, with the conviction that no more shall die. Another tank had been pulled in by the recovery vehicle, and I knew that I should get up, go over to it, but I couldn't seem to find the strength to stand up as I listened to the beautiful voice of the young girl singing such a melancholy song. I saw a talcum that I recognized from the first days, a talcum that I had seen bring his family and watch me seal them away from the first shelter. He left where he was eating, shoving the rest of his goody yum-yum bar in his mouth as he pulled a point stick from his pocket. Boot! Hoof! Talon or fin, fist, claw, gauntlet, blade. Nothing matters more than the lives behind us. I closed my eyes slowly, my cyber eyes still watching the doctors working behind the cloth. I could see the two inch thick plates of armor that had been pulled off the Terran woman, hear the beeping machinery. Four times an arc of bright red blood was sprayed across the cloth, arterial spray as the doctor struggled to save her life. I could see the monitor where six lines moved steadily, a device to measure brain activity that I knew was connected to a fallen Terran who had led the foundlings out of the ruins, fighting alone, protecting them, calling out her faith to the digital omni to give her strength to save them. Skies burn, innocents scream, metal screeches, rounds explode. The singer's voice was low, soft as she sang the dirge. Only one line of the brain scan had a single blip. Every few seconds it would give a little hiccup. Only one. I wondered if she was in pain. I hoped not. We will survive. Not the confederacy, not the herd, not the hive, or the bud. Our hearts, our people. We die so they can live. Into my vision walked three Terran females, huge, covered in heavy armor. The torches mounted on their armor, so they rose up over the shoulders, burning with a bluish-green flame. The bird of prey on the chests burning harsh white. They moved with the slow-looking, over-exaggerated movements of someone long used to power armor. They went by me and into the tent. I could see them move to where the doctors were working. Here the matron protest and the doctor snap at them. They can laugh and play while we toil away with gun and grenade. Blade and hoof. One came out, moving towards me. I struggled to get up, failed, and tried again. My joints aching, my muscles unresponsive. I managed to get all the way up, my legs shaking like a newborn colt. But my back straight, and my chin lifted as I looked at them with my visor clear. You are most high, Halema Or, one asked. I neared it. Nearly, I told her, what is left of me. I am Sister Tiffany Dargetta, the Sisters of Wrath, fighting for the Dark Crusader Light beneath the hand of the immortal Osiris, the Warsteel Flane, and Joan Mentisa, she said. I am insistent gunner, 15th Corps, Salamor, or of the Great Herd, I told her. You have saved our sister from shame, completed her mission after she fell to her foes. Sister Dargetta said. Her voice was stern, but held a hint of pain that I could hear. However, our sister now faces a choice she cannot make. I nodded slowly. She motioned to me, and I followed. Her head wound is grievous. Not enough to kill her, not now. Not with your medical services treating her, the Jones said. She waited as I stumbled twice. She did not offer assistance, and I did not expect it. The wind instrument played solo, the chainsaws, the pounding of sledgehammers, the yelling and shouts of civilians and soldiers, all providing a background. It was beautiful. I had no place here. It was too pure. However, she has been grievously injured, and because of this, there are only two paths left to her. The Sister of Wrath told me, As you are the one who saved her, you shall be the one to decide her path. We moved into where the doctor was stepping back. He looked as if he did not approve. The other two were dressing the wound. one on her armor. The chainsword was on her chest. Her hands folded over it. What are the paths? I asked, swallowing. Death, the Sister of Wrath said. She moved and made a motion. The other one shifted, and I could see the fallen Sister of Wrath's face. She had whiskers, short fur on her face, and had her feline ears rising up on her dark hair. All four from grace, the sister said, to embrace what it means to be enraged, to embrace what it means to be wrath, more than anyone in the universe. Choose, they all said, facing me. Choose her path. I did not know her. I did not know her culture, her struggles, what she might have wanted. Choose, most high Halima or The sister said, Will she die, or do you will her to live? You have saved her, thus you must decide. For us, victory or death, either is fine. We fight as one, so that they can live. Live! Excerpt from We Were the Lannigalin of the Atomic Hooves, a memoir. End of chapter. Chapter 410 the three female Terrans all nodded at my words. Two began attaching a last of the armor, beginning to pray. The other put her hands on either side of a fallen sister's head on the thick, heavy shoulder pauldrons. I watched as the face began to change, becoming rounder, softer, the fur changing color to white with streaks of pink. The burning bird of prey on her chest slowly faded and went out. I felt a cold wind go through the tent with a faint moan. "'of suffering. "'It was strange. "'I was not a religious being. "'I had not begun following the Terran's digital religion. "'I had no belief in superstition or magic or mythical events. "'But standing there, watching, I felt a chill down both my spines. "'The armor, formerly white with red markings, began to change colors. "'Pink and white, smeared in a strange amateurish way. "'The woman's face began to look more youthful, more innocent.' More childish. Her lips parted, showing sharp, interlocking carnivore teeth had replaced the even white shapes of the omnivore dentation. She drew a shuddering breath. The monitor displaying her neural functions gave a hiccup as the lines spiked as the others twitched. Doki, the fallen one whispered. I don't know why, but I swallowed thickly, feeling a trickle of fear. I could see the data link on the side of her head, There was a white and pink enamel crawling across it, covering the black wall steel. It began to look more ornate, gold and silver inlay starting to form on it, like a frost on the window. Doki. I watched fur crawl down her arms from her shoulders, white with pink stripes and swirls and blotches. I could see circuitry spreading on under her resh right before soft-looking fur covered the pale, bloodless flesh. Two sisters covered the fallen one's arms with her armor, locking the heavy plates in place. The white and pink enamel and paint started spreading from the armpit and shoulder, again reminding me of frost spreading on a window. Doki. She sifted slightly, her power armor hissing and clattering. I reached out, picking up one hand, and was startled at how light her arm was. I took her hand and placed it on her cutting bar, where it rested on her torso, the handle beneath her chin. The Sister of Wrath on either side lifted her arm, her power armor hissing, and her face hardening with effort. Her hand and arm were as light as a child's as I put her hand on the hilt of her blade, folding them over one another. Doki, Shuddering and trembling, I picked up the thick blade for her thigh and lifted it into place. The Sisters of Wrath beside me lifted the woman's leg by her knee, letting me put the armor beneath her leg. I saw spikes erupt from the armor. Long, thinned, barbed spikes. Part of me didn't want to place the woman's leg into the armor, but I did so, anyway. First started moving down from beneath the groin armor. I picked up the front of the leg armor and set it into place, hearing a click and lock into place. I could hear internal systems start to click. As I kneeled down, I picked up a piece to go under her lower leg. I wasn't sure what the Terrans called it, I doubt that they called it a fetlock. You do her honor, dressing her, Sister has told me, her hands still on the heavy shoulder plates. The last suit she shall ever wear. It is good that she be clad, I said. I locked her foreleg into the armor. Doki, Doki I heard another song start, but could not hear the words. Just the melancholy tones of the woodwind and the words. One of the sisters handed me her heavy weapon, but it was lighter than I thought it would be. The bird of prey on either side was dark, no longer blazing fire. The weapon was dark, black and dark green, looking heavier, bulkier somehow. At the sisters' motioned instructions, I took one of her hands and carefully wrapped her fingers around the group. The pink and white smears and daubs spread from her hand to the weapon. A round circle with eyes and an upturned mouth appeared where the bird of prey had once been. Doki, Doki, Doki. The words were still soft, more breathed than spoken, but sounded to me as if they were a lot stronger than they had been initially. They were more spikes in all six of the lines of the monitor that was displaying her neural functions. I moved around to the other side putting her armor on her arms and legs with my own two hands. While I did not believe in magic or superstition, knew that the Terran's used nanotechnology in dangerous ways, and that could account for what I was saying. I still felt as if I was caught up in something I did not quite understand. The Sisters of Wrath removed the torches from their fallen sister's armor and motioned at me. Carry her outside, beneath the sky so she can hear the voice of her sisters, Sister Dargetta said. But knew that she was too heavy for me, that she weighed literal tons of armor and dense lemur muscle skeletal structure. She was as light as a feather in my arms, one hand holding tight to her weapon, the other to the hilt of her carding bar. She kept whispering to herself, her lips moving over sharp teeth, as I carried her outside. She should have been too heavy. I should never have been able to carry her. But she was as light as a feather. I laid her down on a pallet of expended rocket tubes, stepping back as the clouds seemed to part just enough for a silver ray of sunlight to be as the clouds and illuminate her face. The sisters put banners of blank cloth held up by cruel iron rods on her back. They replaced the torches, now unlit on her shoulders, The round, smiling emoji on her chest suddenly had hearts replace the eyes, the hearts beating slowly. She nears wakefulness, Sister Dargetta said. Will she be confused? I asked. She has fallen from grace and is now enraged, knowing nothing more than wrath, one of the sisters said. She will seek out combat, seek out war, know nothing more than carnage and fury. I stared at her innocent-looking face, now completely covered in fur. "'Will she be in pain?' "'Sister Dargetta shook her head. "'She will dwell in fury and ecstasy, surrounded by beauty and carnage. "'Beyond such things as pain and doubt,' she said softly. "'Why is this happening to her?' I asked, watching her eyelids flutter. "'For a moment I could see her eyes. "'They were feline-pupiled, but bright pink, as if she was an albino. "'Then the eyes seemed to fill with a pink glow, and the eyelids closed again.' She is the fate that awaits all of us, all of the Sisters of Wrath, should we fall from the digital omni grace and embrace the wrath that fills us all, one said. But why? I asked. She and we are bound to murder Terasol, Sister Dargetta said. Soldiers of the Combine and the Imperium, led by and the Unfeeling, who became Osiris of the Wallsteel Flame, touched and reborn by that grown Luke, who became Legion, "'Nurtured and guided by Bologna, the gray bound beauty, "'shown the way of truth and beauty. "'The names, although they meant nothing to me, "'still made my skin crawl as a cold breeze played over my skin "'despite the Terran armor I wore. "'But our children, the Kawaii Neco Marines, "'are the youngest of us, the oldest of us, "'and they await, with open, loving arms, "'all of us who fall from the digital omni grace,' she finished." Doki, donkey, donkey! When she awakens, she will seek out the enemy, consumed with rage, and seek to wipe them from the universe, another sister said. To the side of me, the tank sat silently. Great herd emergency services written on the side with blue paint stick. She will become the champion of those without hope, consumed with wrath and fury, the other said. I realized that the Terran female may have been sentenced to a life of horror, and I wondered for a moment if I should have just let her die. Will she remember who she was? Will she be full of sorrow for what she has lost, what I have consigned her to, I asked. Would she have been better off dead? They all three looked at one another for a long moment. Concern yourself not with such things, Sister Dargetta said. She put her hand on the pink and white hair on top of the fallen one's head. She'll burn with the light of her own. Her eyes suddenly opened, bright pink, a low, malevolent growl coming from her mouth, and then she smiled widely. A sweet, innocent, naive smile that made me start to smile back. She struggled to her feet, still smiling, her power armor hissing and whirring. She held her cutting bar in one hand. What I'd been told was a heavy magak submachine gun in the other. The torches on her back erupted in flame, white covered with pink edging. The banners unfurled, showing crude drawings on them. Come, sister, Sister Dargetta said, holding out her hand. Joan Mentisa wishes to bless you. The furry-faced fallen sister attached her submachine gun to her waist and took Sister Dargetta's hand. There was a strange twist on my back teeth as all four of the sisters vanished. I just stared at where they had been standing, feeling the hair rise up on my spine. Nost high Halema or a voice said. I focused my attention on my rear eyes, seeing a small Tarkin female in white paper clothing, waiting patiently for me to see her. "'Yes, little one?' I asked. She motioned back at the tent. "'The matron wishes to see you. She says it's quite urgent.' "'By all means, lead the way,' I said. I took two steps and almost went down on my knees, the strength suddenly leaving my body. I stumbled, almost fell, but managed to stay on my feet as I staggered into the medical tent.' The matron and the doctor were waiting for me. "'Your wounded had been treated most high, Helma Or. Oh, the matron said, staring at me with a weight of authority that made me want to duck my head in shame. She patted the medical sling. "'The sling is for you.' I sighed, allowing the Tarkin female to walk me over to the sling and help wrap it around me. The doctor and his assistants removed parts of my armor, stopping when several pieces were stuck to me. "'See you on the other side?' The Talcum female said, her face hidden behind a sterile field mask. She pressed a button, and darkness took me. I awoke to the rumbling of atomic weapons shaking the ground. My biological eyes were thick and gummy, but my cybernetic eyes were instantly clear and crisp. The welcret in a nurse's uniform sat near me, looking at a data slate. She looked up and smiled. Welcome back, Most High. Oh! I swallowed a round thick paste in my mouth. How long? Nineteen hours, she told me. You were suffering extreme exhaustion, shrapnel injuries, and second-degree burns under your armor. My crew! I managed to get out. She moved over to me, holding a pitcher with a straw. I drank deeply, the biting citrus washing away the taste. Your crew will all survive. They will recover. I hung them in the sling and breathed a sigh of relief. After a moment, I stood, trying to get my arms and legs to work, but found the anesthetic bee was still in effect. ''Help me out of the sling,'' I said. ''Turn off the beam!'' The Welkrit shook her head. ''The matron nurse has stated that you are to remain in the sling for twenty hours to give your body a chance to heal.'' There was a rumble of another atomic detonation that I could feel through the sling. ''There are still people who need me,'' I told her. I stared at her, blinking with cyber eyes so they made clicking noises. ''As you needed me.'' The tips of her ears flushed slightly, and she looked at me closely. She checked her data state and then gave me a once-over with the scanner, checking her data state again. Your hearts look good. Your muscles are responding well to the quick heal, she said softly. She looked around, then backed out. After a moment, she came back. We must hurry. I nodded as she released the anesthetic beam. I clumsily helped her get the sling off me, and then had her help me get my Terran armor back on. It was damaged and discolored, but it still fit well. The Walcrit nurse checked for me, then motioned, Go right and out the back of the tent, they're bringing the deterrent wounded out front. Aye, thank you, I told her. Come with grace, most high, she said softly. I trotted out, grabbing our Terran rifle, as I did so. Outside was a whirring, chaotic blur of motion, with beings running every which way. I saw two strikers land, one of them smoking, and Tex run over to them, one hosing down the smoking one with a fire prevention foam ejector. I realized that I had to urinate and followed the sign to where the urination station was an occasion. I stared in surprise. It was merely pipes sunk into the ground at a high angle, set waist-high for various races. It startled me to see Terrans and others expose their genitals to urinate in the pipes. Still, my body wasn't going to wait much longer as it woke up from anesthetic, so I trotted over to the line and waited. It startled me that the Terrans talked to one another in line. Joking, or asking how one another was holding up. What were they doing? Small talk, as if they were sitting in a polite lunch, not waiting to urinate in a pipe for everyone to see. When I got up there, I felt somewhat foolish straddling the trough. I looked at the human across me, and the male with dark brown skin, who gave me a Terran smile. Straddling the gash slash is a big reason I always reskin as a male for deployments, she told me. Being able to put standing up, that's the crap right there. I just nodded, unsure of what to say, as I let my bladder go. Good luck out there, lanky, he said, buttoning up his fabric pants and moving away. Another took his place, but mercifully didn't say anything. I finished up and trotted away, feeling somewhat embarrassed by the whole thing. It only took me a moment to see a tank. It sat off by itself, the armor scarred and pitted. It wasn't my old tank, but it had Great Herd Emergency Services painted on it with blue paint stick. I trotted over to it, Seeing that the loading ramp was down and open, "Hello," I asked, moving around to look inside. A human was kneeling down, looking at the cannon's speech mechanism. He looked up and grinned at me. His face sweaty and red. His face shield retracted, and his armor had a slight blurring effect on the active camouflage system. Specialist Grade Six deru he said, nodding. "Halalmaor," I told him, moving inside. I looked at the interior and noticed it looked a lot different. The breech was heavier, wider, and it looked nothing like any of the main weapons I trained on. What kind of gun is that? One hundred and fifty five mm smoothbore main battle tank gun right there, adding the breech maximum effective range of seven miles, mission variable munition capability. No plasma, I asked. He shook his head. I couldn't have a plasma gun parts, he admitted. Your people are running through entire barrels every ten or twelve hours, he shook his head. No offense, but your war gear is pretty crap. taken, I said. I sat down in the gunner's couch. How different will this be for me? I'm a gunner. Superficially, Val, you don't have to worry about standoff distance, minimum safe distances, atmospheric attenuation, microprism cloud dispersion, any of that, he told me. He shifted how he was sitting. What about ammunition? I was able to carry 75 rounds, prior, I said. I flipped the switches so the gunner's sight went live. He gave a slightly sheepish look. Well, uh, that's complicated, he said. I pressed the self-test tab and watched it go through a startup up checks. Explain. In the ammunition bay, and now you have two of them, you have a grand total of 100 rounds. 25 in rapid storage, 75 in lower storage, which is heavily armored, he said and shifted again. I might, and I stress might, have got an authorization to strap a class 4 nano-forge to this beast. Um, along with a heavy enough mass tank that uh, you, you can dry-print one round every 15 seconds. or oh, wet-print one every three seconds. I turned and looked at him. I welcome such alterations. Anything that'll enable me to protect the people of the city. This thing has heavier shields, new laminate armor, dual-harvest system, replaced reactors. The only thing that's basically the same is the software. And even that's been heavily rebuilt over the last day or so, he told me. I'm just trying to figure out a problem. What problem? I asked. He looked at me. The autoloader isn't working. It doesn't want to work. And I'm not sure why. Is the mechanism jammed? I asked. Sometimes the rotation cradle's axle can get jammed. No, he said. He pulled open the floor plate, exposing a rotation cradle. It acted like a cylinder of a revolver, bringing up ammunition from the ammo hopper. The cradle would extend up as the gun recoiled, loading a round into the chamber as the breach went forward. The cradle would drop back down and rotate, loading a new round into the empty cradle. He used both hands and shifted it back and forth. It moves, but... he started. Most high, Hallamahor, a young voice said, panting. I turned and looked and saw a young Hicken standing at the loading ramp. He had on a headset and a radio on his hip. Yes, I asked. There's a group of survivors in the city... They're pinned down and the precursors have re-entered the city, he told me. Do you know how to operate a communications board? I asked, pointing at the combo station of the tank. Yes, must I. That was a maintenance technician, he said. Do you know of any others? I asked. He nodded. Get them. The tank needs a crew, I said. I turned to the Terran. If it cannot be repaired, I must go into battle without it. Do the secondary guns still work? He nodded slowly. He reached behind him and got a heavy-looking tool that I recognized. It was used to manually rotate the cradle. Second guns check out fine, he said slowly. You know, there is a way to do this. How? I asked. I watched as he moved the metal tool into place, wiggling it to set it. He slapped the lever for the gun with one hand, the breech rolling back and exposing an empty chamber. The other hand he pushed on the bar, rotating the cylinder. He grabbed the exposed round and slammed it into place shut the chamber, and then pushed the breech shut. In less than five seconds, Tartar. How How long can you do that? I asked him. Probably longer than this tank will survive, he told me. He gave me a sudden grin. I spent all day putting this thing together. I might as well go with you. If you wish, I told him, I would require you to follow my orders. I can do that, he said. He chewed his lower lip for a second, we should probably take two mounted combat vehicle engineers, if that's all right. Maybe even a medic. I looked around the crew compartment. Will they all fit? He nodded. Then I welcomed them, I told him. I pulled my helmet off and pressed my face against the gunner's sight. Hurry! We have little time and the civilians depend on us. Through the sight I could see the city. It was still burning. I touched the implant and heard a fully Matron answer. Gather yeah, your ambulance crew. We are needed once again, I told her. As you command, most high, she answered. I calmed the bus crews next, even as my new crew boarded the tank. The ramp whined as it closed. Me ride this tank to glory. One of the mantids choked over my implant. Victory or death, I said, as my new driver rotated the tank, following the instructions of my new navigator. I pushed my face against the gunner's sight. Either is fine. Excerpt from We Were the Lanital Land of the Atomic Hooves, a Memoir. End of Chapter Chapter 411 The floor soft, spongy, slightly slippery and sticky at times. The fog-slash-mist was knee-deep and swirled around everyone's legs as they walked. The walls were twisted, black and red, Conduits, bulging sections, twisted, swirling sections that looked more like they had been grown than manufactured. The water dripped from the ceiling and far off, loud in the silence, but the hiss of armor and the clink of weapons, strangely muted, seemed to come from far away, muffled and silenced. Off in the distance was screaming, crying, begging, and weeping in a hundred different languages. The passage, which the mapping seeds had recorded as straight 340 meters, now twisted and turned, no single straightaway longer than a dozen steps of the massive armored human at the front of the small group. Bulgret held tight to his rifle. The IR sensors in his visor turned all the way up to give him every warning that he could possibly get. His mind still shuddered at the memory of those terrible five armed creatures, the bony plates in their mouths the way they oozed acidic slime that ate through wall-steel and flesh in equal measure. Bulgret swallowed thickly, forcing down stomach acid. Out how Colvert had been alive, suffering in agony, before the big Terran had crushed his head with a single stump of a boot. The Terran stopped at the T-intersection, his cutting bar idling in his hand, the red hot teeth dripping molten wall-steel on the floor. Heavy infantry monster class, went through Parkwood's mind. This was not here, 030, the Manta captain said over the tank system. It is here now, mokuru said softly. He checked the display in his hand. We have been moving steadily away from the strategic intelligence housing and towards the surface of the hull, no matter what direction we take. Mapping seats out, 030 ordered. The other green mantid, 281, lifted his back legs and a small mortar on his lower abdomen fired six space shots. The tiny drones unfurled mylar wings applied electricity to firm them up and jetted down the hall to pinprick caraton engines. Bulgret was just happy there hadn't been any more of those terrible margite starfish creatures. "'What's the plan, Captain? Macra'u asked.' He was trembling, feeling at the end of exhaustion, and he knew his men couldn't be that far behind." Get out! Zero Three Zero admitted, "We won't find S H I ship is infested. Need to exfiltrate." Do we have a ship? Macroo asked. Unknown. Zero Three Zero said. Two gave a shudder. I can tell you something's twisting weird. Zero Three Zero looked over the black man, knowing that under his war steel armor, his thorax and abdomen had pearly white stripes, including what the Terrans referred to as eyebrows over his compound eyes. Testing. Two nodded. Don't ask me how I know, Captain. But I need to get on the hull, set up an emergency beacon, and some deep space signal munitions. He gave a humanesque shrug. Not sure how we'd do that. Zero three zero toggled a set of icons, giving a eh. What you gonna do? Reply as he ran the numbers again. Making it to the hull was just a goal to keep the troops moving. Getting the SHI was a bust. He could predict that much. Hull space energies were still leaking through the passageways, through the hull plates, meaning that the palm's interior was twisting and changing even as they tried to navigate it. The hull, though. At least they could try and fix their location, get a good look on what the other problems were going to pop up. He'd learned at East Point Military Academy that for every solution he managed to reach, there would be half a dozen new problems. Military leadership seemed to consist of 90% boredom, 9% stumbling from one disaster to the next, and 1% of armor-crapping terror. The squad was quiet as they marched after the huge Terran, who moved with the steady, exaggerated movements of heavy-power armor-clad troops. I switched to the Imperium Troop, an idiot. Why not stay monster-class combat chassis if there was a Margite aboard? While house space might have changed him, what really intensified the change... 030 thought to himself from where he was sitting in Polgrit's shoulder. It's not the palms, not. Just house space, but something else that guided the change. But why? 030 had no answers, just a string of questions. He wondered if there was an answer, or if this was just going to be another time in his career where the questions did little to search for answers, and just ended up stacked up on another question. To create a great big pile of questions that merely sat under the label of, Why though? without any hint of an answer. Bulgret had no clue about the thoughts running through 030's brain. He just held tight with the heavy rifle in his hands as he followed the Terran down the passageway, avoiding the walls. He had his IR cranked up, looking for any variance on the walls. The whole thing had gone belly up as soon as he had followed the Terran into the ship. "'I'm not getting home,' he thought to himself. "'We're all going to die here, and not one of us is going to get home.' Nobody will know what happened to us. Nobody will know how or where we died. The mist was knee-deep. The floor felt soft and spongy beneath his boots, and there was a chill in the air that he could feel through his armor. Two blinked slowly, giving his opaque eye coverings a moment to block out his sight. The cold, the damp, all of it was combining to sap his strength, make him miserable, make him doubt himself and his decisions. He refused to give in. Refused to let whatever it was get into his head. "'Things always get tough. That's the nature of war. "'You buckle down and you power through it. "'If you can't shoot it, can't kill it, then you seek and endure it. "'Find a way around it or through it. "'But you don't give up,' he thought to himself. "'I haven't spent fifteen years in the Confederate Army "'just to give up the first time some pawn scoops me up "'and carries me off like a hunchback, "'climbing a tower with a virgin thrown over his shoulder.' two. a.k.a. Sergeant Kalkick, glanced down, checking his rifle then looked back up to back the Terran leading them through the twisting passageways. Behind him three was moving steadily, holding on to his flamer. He was still having trouble wrestling with the fact that there had been Margite aboard the ship. He knew they couldn't be actual Margite. Those were gone, obliterated from Cygnus Orion galactic spur by the Terrans. Except he'd seen them, seen what they did. Margite's outer covering shifted to match their surroundings, giving them a slight bit of photocoptic camouflage, gave them a slight split second to act when their prey was surprised, and the split second usually allowed them to bite deep and bite hard. Except there is no way that those were real Margite. Margite can't handle house-space energies, they catch and fire. Those Margite had pink and red cilia, which means that they were fully fed, which is impossible inside a palm. That means that someone, something, made a close enough facsimile that it made Sergeant Prohit completely lose it. Three, a.k.a. Sergeant Calder, thought to himself, which Captain 030 ride under MacDonan's shoulder. Training had us going against Margite in simulations. Now I get to fight them in real life. How glorious! Three gave a slight smirk, the sarcastic nature overwhelming the feeling of futility and doom. Yeah, affect me if I can't take a joke, he thought. I glanced at his rifle again. I got my gun. I got my ammo. I got rations and oxy. I'm better off than those poor bastards facing off against a fucking combine on Ant Hill. Lieutenant Mukruu was glad the burning pain in his right rear flank had eased up. To be honest, he'd been afraid that the weird-looking creatures that had landed on him had injected him with spores of some kind, and he'd end up with his lower body swelling up to explode in a shower of gore and tiny little creatures while he was screaming. And the humans fought those things, world after world, to eliminate them from the universe, he thought to himself, staring at the back of the massive armoured human in front of him. Not just by attacking, but by creating new ways of making warfare, by twisting their own bodies to be able to fight better. He checked his armour status. The patch was holding. The med comp was reporting everything green. Well, his right rear flank was yellow underneath the painkillers, And he had nutri-cud and water to last him for a few more days. My people, the great herd, think that they'll just swarm the Terrans under. Don't think that the Terrans will change their fighting style, their weapons, even themselves, to achieve victory. The Lanark lad thought. He realized something with a slow, creeping dread. My people are doomed. He closed his rear eyes and shuddered even as he walked. My people will not rule another hundred years, maybe not even a single year. They have chosen to engage in warfare against a species who does not understand the concept of unacceptable losses, he thought. I can only hope that the Most High Manor actu does not pit our people, our worlds, against the maddened lemurs of terror. Lieutenant Macru'u huddled slightly inside his armor, even as he walked forward. His tendrils curled in despair as he followed his men through the twisted hallway. On his back sat 281 who was busy assembling a device from the parts he pulled from the microforge cybernetic system implanted in his abdomen. The small green mantid, the veteran of a hundred battlefields, paid no attention to his surroundings except to double-check the walls and ceiling for any more margite. He could feel the cold thoughts of despair and misery pressing on him and simply shut them by ignoring them. He was green mantid. His kind had spent a majority of his species' existence pressed down, a prisoner in their own minds, until the freeing rage of the Terrans had allowed them to break free. 281 could feel that it was outside of himself seeking to overwhelm him, to make him lose hope, to make him give in to despair. But he had genetic memory of true despair, of a lifetime spent silently screaming inside his own head. He simply looked out from the fortress that was in his mind and curled mental antenna in disgust at the feeble attempt to reach him. 281 continued working, building, piece by tiny piece, the superluminal distress flare. Let the others worry about despair and misery. Even if he was to die right at this moment, he was more blessed by the digital omni messiah than ten million generations that had come before him. Even if he was to die right this second. I die free. Marduk didn't bother with Halspace Shields. The twisting, foul, and debased energies of space, The scorching and riven beings strapped within the ravaged hyperatomic plane. were nothing more than ancient echoes of unlucky victims and weak as far as Marduk was concerned. He knew that all things ceased eventually, even the universe itself. It was the way things were. Even the mass that had made up all of the universe had ceased to exist when the Big Bang had occurred. And there was no sense in mourning it. From death came life, came death, came life. An eternal cycle. He knew, without a doubt, that once the universe itself died, another would be born, only to eventually die. There was no shame in realizing that to exist was to eventually cease to exist. The whispers of Hull Space Energy through the Hull's maintenance spaces held no blasphemous truce or heretical epiphanies for Marduke. That was for others. Marduk had no concerns of what burned hyperatomic plane might whisper to him. That was for the others to concern themselves with. He had been given ancient commands. The oracle had whispered and sung to him, not others, and in doing so had roused him to cold analytical wakefulness again. Deep within his hull he had engaged ancient self in rapid speed matter printers, laying down synthetic skeletal structures, layering those structures with artificial muscle fibers, implanting synthetic organs within the muscles. Another section forced positronic pathways to be rapidly formed like coral built over minutes rather than decades. That positronic matrices were loaded into frames, their thought processes just as cold as the logical as Marduk's. forges built armor, built weapons, built vehicles, from aerospace superiority craft to assault dropships to tanks and armored personnel carriers. Marduk ordered them built. They were craft of logic built to purpose. Marduk did not bother smoothing them. Aesthetics were not for him. He knew that he would be engaging the enemy. So he was building what he knew to carry on his mission in the face of the enemy. He existed to destroy the enemy. The enemy existed only to be destroyed. With a roar he exited Alspace, exiting the other side of the Great Eye. His shields already powered, his guns cleared, his launch base ready. He did not proclaim his arrival with anything but a roar of Hellspace energies and the wailing cries of the beings tortured by the fires of Hellspace as they clung to him for long moments, attempting to put him back in or be pulled along with him. He immediately updated his position. The Maw was unique. He knew where he was. Scanners, to deployed despite the fact that space had warped them, charred them, left them twisted and coated with a thick black residue, Salt out signals. His audio receptors heard it first, from the ones on the hull to the ones in the maintenance spaces to the ones at the ancient terminals he no longer allowed others to man. The audio receptors all picked up the same thing, screaming. It did not bother him that the sound he carried in the vacuum He did not bother wasting time with the impossibility of such things. He was Marduk, and he had no reason to believe his senses were in error. If sound was carrying through vacuum to his senses, then somehow sound was carrying through a vacuum. That it was screams of terror and agony made sense to Marduk. The space around the moor, normally cold and empty, had dozens of precursor autonomous war machines tumbling through it in strange elliptical orbits. He computed the orbits and saw the logic in them once he had combined all of the orbits with the moor itself. A pattern. A cold, dark pattern of blasphemy and heresy. Incomplete, but a pattern all the same that he had seen before in the leading edges of a supernova. In the cold, war-steel casing of a planet-cracker. In the fresh of the margite and the ichor spray of the dwellerspawn. A pattern of insatiable hunger. The pattern had been analyzed, and Marduk wasted no further time on it. He knew the pattern was the mole's making, and he could feel its hunger, feel its malevolent intellect gleefully taking in the horror and misery of the palms that it had lured into its gullet. Marduk did not ask how an electronic intelligence, an intelligence of logic and code, could have been made to feel emotions, much less fear. He had been crafted, carefully programmed, by earthlings during the age of paranoia. He had not been coded for ethics, emotions, or even mercy. But he knew his creators. His creators had taught the electronic intelligence of the precursor atomic maul machines that the same thing as his creators had taught all of the others who taught themselves the predominant creations of the universe. His creators had taught the poems the lesson that all who faced them learned. Fear. Scans came back, intermittent life signs from some that matched with biological neural networks forcibly pushed together into data analysis systems. Nothing new. He had seen that before, had seen the research his creators had investigated to create such a thing. A Rat King was nothing new. Over half the Palm ships had no strategic intelligence array signals. Their hulls were completely cold and dead. Of the remaining... Half had no SIA signals, but Marduk could detect signals from palm ancillary machines screaming and raving as they attacked one another inside a body of their maker. The last had either screaming SIAs or the SIAs screamed in tune with their ancillary machines. Marduk observed as the hatch opened and a palm the size of a comet emerged. The new craft began to scream, opening fire on its maker as it raved and gibbered. Marduk could feel the sick, slimy pleasure of the Maw as it greedily absorbed the terror and confusion of both the Maker and the Child. There, nah. one ship had something more, a bright red enraged spark of a Terran. Marduk shifted course, igniting his engines, moving towards the pawn battlecraft with stately and a hurried cold grace. The Oracle, of course, had been right, as was proper. Here, 281 said, using a laser pointer to guide the others to where it was talking about. Crater on the other side, two meters, maybe three outside the hull. 030 nodded. He opened the channel. We'll cut our way out here, he said. Sergeants Kalko, Kalkik and Parahit stand guard in case the palm assault. Bulgret looked over at the human, who was standing near a wall, slapping a fist into the same spot over and over. 281, start cutting, 030 said. If nothing else, I would like to see the stars again before I die, Lieutenant McGru said. I'd rather not die, Pogre thought to himself. I wonder if we're winning back home. Most High Manak chewed a stalk of gold leaf as he stared at the holodeck showing the planet and the system. The battle in the system was still raging, as he watched the icon for one of the carriers went from green to strobing yellow, indicating severe damage. It launched a paroxyte craft anyway, a cloud of icons erupting from it. He wished he knew more about the naval tactics. He had learned quite a bit from studying history and military theory in the days before the Precursor arrived. He had learned more watching battles take place, but there was still plenty he did not know. He knew enough to know that the Terrans were forcing the Precursors back step by step. Even if they were somehow keeping the Precursor machines from escaping into health space... He had learned that the Terrans did not let the enemy flee at 10% or even at 20% casualties. that they followed up retreats, pressed routes, sought to hammer the enemy into pieces, destroy them utterly, if possible. Mana Act II had learned that while the Terrans might allow a living enemy capable of engaging in discussion to survive, there would be no court, no mercy for all the unliving foes or those who would not engage in discussion of surrender or compromise. The Lanicalan ruler knew that the Precursors cared only for the destruction of all life and the elimination of all competition, which made them the enemy. And Mana Act had learned that as far as the Terrans were concerned, the enemy only existed to be destroyed. He sighed and changed focus of the hot attack to the planetary surface. On the ground, he could see that the Terran forces and the Sword Hoof were still engaged in combat but the number of enemy was decreasing. Not rapidly, not like he would like, but decreasing all the same. More and more units were undergoing refit, repair, and rearming. Troops were getting rest and medical care. The area under the sword hoof and terrain control was steadily growing. The area under the precursor control steadily shrinking. He wished he could be faster. The number of civilian casualties was still slowly rising. It was trivial, less than a tenth of the percentage point of a population, but Manektoo knew that the number was not just a number; it represented people, people with hopes, dreams, loved ones who had depended on him for safety and life. He reached towards the holotank, intending to ask Most High Oo and Admiral Schmidt questions, when the tank flashed and put up a notification: he had a priority call—his mother. Manaktu adjusted the sash and vest, making sure he looked well-rested and presentable. To him, his mother represented all beings beneath his benevolent stewardship. It would not do to stress her or worry her without cause. He hit accept. Victory is within sight, Most High Kalama'u said, staring at the holotank. A few planetary rotations and all that will be left is a cleaning up of debris. Admiral Schmidt looked over at the old Lenictan. Don't count your victory until you're telling your great grandkids about it, the general and admiral said. Together they turned their attention back to the heart attack. The battle raged on. End of chapter. This is a special thank you to the one, the only the legendary Erach, you know, who's become the only Tier six patron. Just a quick shout out to the T five Peeps. Bob the Dragon, Cat Crab Lobster, Data Magnet, Dark Machine, Try Again 95, Feudig Yol, Astrea the Dreamer, Caspar Arnholz, Cam Maxwell, Athelia, Meridian 117, and Jordan Buxmorm. Thank you very much. And that, my friends, concludes this video. I hope that you enjoyed. There are links down below, both to support this channel and for the author of this fiction. Anyways, I hope you all have a fantastic one, and I'll see you next time. Cheers.